You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. This podcast is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Charlie Jung Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. This is episode three in a six-part series called The President's Club, which parallels an all-new special exhibit at the Nixon Library. Joining us again on this episode is the curator and author of that exhibit, Bob Bostock. Bob, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you again, Allie. I'm excited to talk about today's pair. Today we're discussing the unique friendship between FDR and LBJ. Bob, why did you choose to highlight this pair? This is a fascinating pair. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Linda B. Johnson, uh, probably the two most active uh, presidents of the Democratic Party in the 20th century in terms of their legislative agenda. And although FDR died almost 20 years before Johnson became president, they had a relationship very early in Johnson's career that I don't think a lot of people know about. And I was fascinated to find uh, just how deep the relationship was from a political standpoint uh, very early in Johnson's career as a young member of Congress from the 10th District of Texas. So the two of them, although certainly not strictly members of the President's Club in terms of them becoming uh, having a relationship, uh, one as a former president, one as a sitting president, Johnson was so influenced by FDR, his approach to governing and uh, his political philosophy that uh, in a very real sense, they may be some of the closest members of the President's Club. This pair is different because Johnson's political career officially began while FDR was already the sitting president when he ran for Congress in a special election at only 29 years old. How did FDR come into play during Johnson's first congressional bid? Well, it was interesting. You know, LBJ had gone to Washington to work as a congressional aide in the early 1930s and then went back to Texas. He had decided he wanted to become an elected official at some point. And in April of 1937, not quite 30 years old, he wins a special election to the House uh, from Texas's 10th Congressional District. The seat had become open when the incumbent, who had only been reelected to the seat the previous November, November of 1936, died in office. Uh, the, the previous incumbent had, was, had won his 12th term in Congress, so he had been there for 22 plus years uh, when he died in office. So the, the special election was called you know, very quickly. It was just a matter of a few weeks from the time that the sitting member died and, and the election was held. And there were actually nine candidates running uh, for this seat. So Johnson, very ambitious, you know, even at a young age, uh, ran for the seat. He beat his eight opponents. He won the seat with only 28% of the vote, which is kind of amazing uh, to be elected to Congress with just 28% of the vote, a little over one out of four votes. But against eight opponents, you know, that's pretty good. And he ran his campaign as a strong supporter of FDR. FDR had carried the district in 1936 by a huge margin. And Johnson felt that the closer he could connect himself with with Roosevelt, the better he would do. And in fact, that turned out to be the case. So shortly after uh, Johnson was elected, and even before he had left to take up his job in Washington, Roosevelt had taken a fishing trip in the Gulf of Mexico. And Roosevelt, when he when he came into uh, Galveston uh, from the fishing trip, it was going to take a train uh, to several stops in Texas. He said, you know, we're, we're close by this new fellow, Johnson. Why don't we invite him onto the train so I can get to know him and can lobby him a little bit to support 
my legislative agenda. So uh, Roosevelt invites Johnson onto the train. Of course, Johnson goes and ends up riding uh, for hours on the train with FDR and uh, really became, uh, you know, nothing shy about LBJ, even as a 29-year-old newly elected member of Congress sitting with the president of the United States who had just won his second term by a huge margin. LBJ wasn't intimidated. He came on like gangbusters. Uh, Roosevelt said he came on like a freight train. And uh, Johnson was already lobbying for contracts for his district, for all sorts of things, and also pledging his support to um, FDR, pledging his support to FDR's agenda, his legislative agenda. So uh, FDR knew immediately that this was uh, somebody who he could count on, that uh, that Johnson would be a very strong supporter of uh, FDR's uh, legislative program, and that um, he could really count on Johnson. And Johnson, you know, was a very, very keen observer of um, politics from the time he was working on the Hill, and really, really was great in terms of learning how the levers of power work. So, and he showed that from the very beginning. But at the end of the time that they spent on the train together, uh, Roosevelt said to one of his aides, I've just met the most remarkable young man. And uh, he told a couple other uh, aides within his inner circle that Johnson came on like a freight train and said of LBJ, uh, this boy could well be the first Southern president, obviously, since the Civil War. And of course, FDR's prediction uh, became true. Uh, almost, you know, 25 plus years later when, when Johnson became president after President Kennedy's assassination. So FDR is impressed with Johnson and he's he's glad to have his support. Uh, and it was one of the most challenging times in American history. So that support was much needed. Could you talk a little bit about FDR's presidency and how it was different from those that had preceded it? Sure. Roosevelt came into office. Uh, he came into office in early 1933. Was elected in 1932. Uh, in the early years of, of the Great Depression, uh, the stock market had crashed in 1929, threw millions of people out of work. Unemployment was approaching 25 percent. Uh, people were out of work. It was uh, a disastrous economic time in the country. Perhaps the probably the worst depression in the history of the country. When Roosevelt ran in 1932 against the incumbent Republican President Herbert Hoover, he criticized Hoover for not taking enough action by the federal government to help bring the United States out of this, uh, out of the depression. So he ran on a very vigorous platform, uh, pledging to do all sorts of uh, federal actions to address the uh, economic insecurity that millions of people across the country were feeling. And FDR did that in his first hundred days as president. He set kind of a new standard for every president since by, by saying he's going to pr propose an enormously far-reaching legislative agenda, which he did. And he called his approach the New Deal for the American people, uh, passed all sorts of federal programs to put people back to work, to provide uh, income support to people, made the role of the federal government far more uh reaching into the lives of the economy, into, into people's lives than any president before him. And he really redefined the presidency uh, during his uh, three plus terms and off. He was elected to four terms, but uh, died very early in his fourth term. So Roosevelt facing this terrible economic dislocation really 
turned the presidency into a, an, an engine of action to try and address the the uh, depression that was going on across the country, and also towards the, the towards the end of the 1930s, as uh, both Imperial Japan was expanding its reach in the Pacific, Hitler coming to power and threatening Europe, Mussolini in Italy, as a close ally of Hitler's, uh, saw also a lot of trouble brewing on the international scene. And Roosevelt, again, most historians would uh, credit him with kind of masterfully guiding the United States into uh, the what became World War II. There was a lot of opposition, particularly after World War I, to getting involved in foreign wars, as they were as they were called. You know, the United States didn't have a long history of getting involved in any wars outside of its own territory um, or, you know, outside of the North American continent. And uh, Roosevelt was masterful in terms of turning the tide of opinion towards the United States moving away from an isolationist stance to getting involved in the war. And of course, when when Pearl Harbor was attacked, um, you know, that turned the tide. But the United States had already been uh, helping out Great Britain in its fight against uh, Germany, against Hitler in Germany, and uh, was on a much better footing for entering the war than it would have been had Roosevelt not kind of started in a way a lot of kind of behind the scenes uh, sorts of ways to get the United States prepared for that war. So it was a time of a very uh, vigorous, active presidency, uh, probably more so uh, than any other president uh, in history, with the possible exception of Roosevelt's cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, who took the same approach to the presidency that, uh, that Franklin did in terms of their um, they're, they're extending the reach of the federal government into areas that, that the federal government had never really been involved in before. What was Johnson's role during the presidency, as a, if any, as a young congressman? Well, he was a, a very vigorous supporter of, uh, of Roosevelt's legislative agenda. Uh, and he saw, particularly because Johnson came from, as, as a member of Congress, a, a relatively poor district. Uh, with a lot of poverty even before the depression hit. Um, and, you know, not even well, parts of Texas didn't even have electricity at that point. So Johnson was a very strong advocate for bringing, having the federal government play a role in bringing electricity to parts of the rural South and in supporting all of the various programs that Roosevelt put in place to um, help get jobs for people who were jobless and things like that. So Johnson was a very strong supporter for Roosevelt's legislative program. And uh, while Roosevelt was working with a very strong uh, Democratic majority in the Congress, uh, having LBJ's strong support really helped solidify that support across the entire Democratic caucus. Earlier, you mentioned that FDR said he thought he might have met the first Southern president um, since the Civil War when he met Johnson. Do we have any indication of Johnson's political ambitions at this time as a young congressman? Well, I think uh, the fact that, you know, he immediately, as soon as he ran, was attaching himself to a president of the United States is very telling. But I think one of the things that just I find absolutely fascinating and a real window into Johnson's psychology and his ambition is as a young congressman, he actually sent President Roosevelt an autographed photograph of himself, which is kind of unusual. You know, anyone who's ever been in the office of a member of Congress, you, you see on their walls all sorts of awards they've gotten from 
from organizations in their district and, you know, pictures of themselves with prominent people. And, you know, if they have autographed photos of them with the president, those are hanging on the wall. And if they help pass a bill, they'll have a, a pen that, you know, the president used to sign the bill and all sorts of stuff. Very few members of Congress would think to send a picture of themselves to the president as if the president wanted an autographed photograph of, of a, you know, young member of Congress from Texas. But the photograph, and we have a reproduction of it in the exhibit for people to see, is fascinating because Johnson looks like he looks like a real rube. So, you know, he's standing there, his his suit jacket is off. Uh, there are sweat stains under his arms on his shirt. Uh, he looks disheveled. Uh, you know, it's there's no sophistication in this in this photograph at all. Johnson inscribes the photograph to Roosevelt in a very flattering way. He writes on it, for my chief, from one who loves him and all he stands for, Lyndon B. Johnson, 10th Texas District. And I, I just find the, uh, as we, we would say in the East, the chutzpah of that uh, sort of the nerve of a young congressman sending a, an autograph photograph to the president. It just, I think, is a real window into um, not only Johnson's ability to uh, to flatter people to help make political allies out of them, but also a window into his own psychology in terms of where he saw himself going, because it's kind of bold for uh, a young member of Congress to send the president of the United States an, an inscribed autograph photograph of themselves. I suspect Roosevelt did not receive a whole lot of those, but I think it says a lot about LBJ. <laughs> So what path did LBJ's political career end up taking? We FDR ultimately dies in office and 20 years later, he's uh, Johnson is elected president. What happens in the interim? Well, Johnson uh, goes on from the House to win a seat in the uh, in the United States Senate from Texas in a very, very close election. It was so close that he got the nickname Landslide Linden. Uh, he won by literally a handful of votes. There's a lot of talk about voter fraud in that election, but nevertheless, his election stands. He goes to the Senate and becomes probably the most powerful majority leader in the Senate during the Eisenhower administration, probably the most powerful majority leader in the 20th century, and one of the most powerful majority leaders in the history of the U.S. Senate. Very, very influential um, in terms of his ability to hold onto his caucus, to get his, the senators in his caucus to vote his way. Very, very persuasive in, in terms of his ability to uh, work with the members of his caucus. Uh, the, the, they talk about, historians talk about the Johnson treatment, where LBJ, who was tall, he was six foot four, a large guy, would get so close into people's personal space as to become intimidating. And the Johnson Library has this great photograph blown up to life size of Johnson giving the treatment to of uh, one of his colleagues where he's who's much shorter than he is. And Johnson is kind of towering over him. And that was very typical. Johnson was a very physical sort of guy. So uh, that was part of his effectiveness as majority leader. And also he knew every senator's states and what they wanted and who was powerful in their states, probably better than the senators knew themselves. So he knew uh, what buttons to push to get senators to, to go his way. So he was very successful. In 1960, he, he decides to run for the Democratic nomination for president, uh, loses that, obviously, to John F. Kennedy, who won the, the nomination of his party in 1960. 
But Kennedy, wanting to shore up his support in Texas and elsewhere in the South, picks Johnson as his vice president. Uh, Kennedy's brother, Bobby, was appalled. He couldn't believe it. He thought Johnson was this crude, rude guy who, you know, could he could not see him in the Kennedy administration if they happened to win. LBJ, or LBJ was very concerned that Bobby was going to try and uh, take back JFK's uh, invitation to join the ticket as vice president. Of course, that didn't happen. So Johnson runs with uh, Kennedy in 1960. They win in one of the closest elections in American history, defeating uh, then Vice President Nixon and his running mate, Henry Cabot Lodge. And Johnson finds himself in the vice presidency. He was kind of he was really frustrated as vice president because he was used to wielding a lot of power. And Kennedy really didn't give him much to do. And he was the much um, he was the much more senior statesman. Much of the two. senior, much senior. Kennedy had been elected to the Senate in 1952. Johnson, you know, was the majority leader for most of the time Kennedy was in the Senate. Kennedy, frankly, did not did not create much of a legislative record. I mean, he wasn't considered one of the great stars of the Senate in terms of his legislative record. Um, so Johnson, you know, was used to exercising far more power than Kennedy. He was older than Kennedy, far more experienced. And, you know, here he is under under JFK kind of chomping at the bit with really nothing to do. He was very frustrated being vice president. And, you know, I think Johnson may have even thought that when entertained thoughts about whether he would even want to remain on the ticket in 1964 when Kennedy was would have been running for reelection and also whether whether Kennedy would have somehow uh, kind of eased him off the ticket, even if Johnson had wanted to stay. But of course, the tragic events in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, with the assassination of President Kennedy in Johnson's home state, um, obviously then Johnson becomes president. And uh, the history of the 1960s and really all of the world since had changed on a, changed on a dime. When Johnson becomes president, what role does his admiration and friendship with FDR play in his administration, if any? Um, it played a huge role. In fact, um, he saw himself kind of as the political heir of of FDRs. He wanted to do for particularly uh, people who were living in poverty and people living at the edges of society economically and other socially and, and culturally and otherwise, what he felt FDR had done for people during the Depression, but he even wanted to go further than that. So very shortly after he became president, he, he developed a timeline for action for his own presidency. And he told one of his closest aides, Bill Moyers, who many of our listeners probably have seen on PBS, he's been a, a, a figure commentator on PBS for many, many years. He told uh, Moyers, and Moyers quotes him as saying, look, I've just been figuring out how much time we would have to do what we really want to do. I really intend to finish Franklin Roosevelt's revolution. And then he went on and said, if we're going to compete with Roosevelt's revolution, it's got to be Johnson's program, and it's got to be bigger than anything that has been envisioned so far. So Johnson really wanted to just com complete, not just complete what Roosevelt had done in terms of particularly his domestic social policy. He wanted to take it even further than FDR ever could have imagined. And so we saw Johnson, um, you know, passing, uh, being the president who passed the Voting Rights Act uh, with 
stronger support from the Republicans in the Congress than he got from his own party. The um, Civil Rights Act, obviously, in 1964, all his uh, all the domestic programs of the Great Society and the War on Poverty. Johnson has an incredibly active uh, domestic policy program that he was able to enact in the Congress in the first several years of his presidency. It wasn't until he got bogged down in Vietnam that uh, things really changed. But when Johnson ran for re-election in 1964, only less than a year after he became president, after President Kennedy's assassination, he piled up one of the largest landslides in American history, both in the Electoral College and in the popular vote. Um, so he, he took what he saw as Roosevelt's vision, expanded on it, and also uh, to help because the country was so shaken by Kennedy's assassination. He did a lot of these things. Also, he he spoke about them as kind of completing what Kennedy would have done had he lived. So he was very, very effective in using, um, using and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but in using the all of the sympathy and the and the anguish that occurred in the country after Kennedy's assassination, and also looking back towards FDR uh, to build on what FDR had started thirty years before. And symbolically, perhaps uh, in parallel to the story we heard earlier of Johnson sending FDR a photo of himself, he actually hangs a photo of FDR in his Oval Office. Is that correct? He does. He hangs uh, Roosevelt's portrait over the fireplace in the in the Oval Office. Um, it has it had been kind of a tradition, um, or has become a tradition, to hang Washington's portrait over the Oval Office fireplace. But Johnson hung FDR's portrait over the Oval Office fireplace. So every time he was sitting at his desk there in the Oval Office and looking across the office to the fireplace at the other end, there was his hero and his mentor of sorts hanging above the fireplace, remembering, kind of reminding uh, Johnson of, of whose footsteps he was going to follow in and then expand what, what Roosevelt had, um, had, had achieved. And we have in the exhibit this great uh, photograph of Johnson when he was vice president. He also had a portrait of Roosevelt hanging in his vice presidential suite in the what was then called the old executive office building. It's now known as the Eisenhower. But um, it, was, it was great. To, we have this great picture of Johnson kind of looking adoringly up at, at FDR's portrait in, his, in uh, Johnson's vice presidential office. So Johnson uh, thought FDR was a giant uh, as a president uh, and really admired him greatly. And everything he did really as president was influenced by uh, what FDR was able to accomplish and how he was able to go about accomplishing it. Next episode, we'll be breaking from format slightly and talking about two presidential friendships, the first being the relationship between President Eisenhower and President Nixon, and the second being the relationship between President Kennedy and President Nixon. Yes, Allie, and, and these are these are two different relationships that are really, really interesting. Um, as President Eisenhower's vice president, uh, Richard Nixon and Eisenhower basically reinvented the vice presidency. Eisenhower gave Nixon an incredible portfolio uh, in terms of representing the country abroad, as well as overseeing domestic, uh, certain domestic programs and giving Nixon the authority when Eisenhower was either not in Washington or when Eisenhower was very sick with a, after a heart attack of presiding over the cabinet and the National Security Council, which was unprecedented in American history. Uh, so Nixon, when he runs for president in 1960, 
is touting uh, his campaign, is talking about him. And Eisenhower said this himself, that, that Nixon was probably the most experienced person ever to run for the presidency, given the eight years he had spent as Eisenhower's vice president. And then, of course, he runs against Kennedy. And Kennedy and Nixon had been friends since 1946, when they both came to Congress as freshman members of Congress for the very first time, right after the end of the Second World War, served on the exact same committee in the House of Representatives. And when uh, Nixon became vice president, his office in the Capitol was very close to Kennedy's office. And the two of them had a very uh, cordial relationship during their entire time in Washington until they ran against each other for president. And then things weren't as cordial as they had been for the previous 14 years. I can't wait to learn more about that next week on our fourth episode of the President's Club series. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. Our guest today was the curator and author of the President's Club special exhibit at the Nixon Library, Bob Bostock. On behalf of the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nixon Foundation. Please subscribe to the podcast and tune in next week for the fourth episode of the President's Club. <laughs>